And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered him, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night, before the cock crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again and for the second time he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. While he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs, from the chief priests and elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man, seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you came to do. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, Put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he would at once send me more than twelve legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come out as against a robber and with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I sat in a temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. Great to be speaking to you once again. I'm Matt. I'm based here at the Clarendon Centre site of Emmanuel, but it's good to be speaking to you if you're at the Villas or Shoreham or Oasis. We have, through this term, been looking at Matthew's Gospel in a series that we've entitled Hope Is Here. And we reached an important part in the life of Jesus as we approach the end of his earthly life. And what we've just heard there is the description of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. And we see Jesus in a very vulnerable moment. He even says himself that he's very sorrowful, even to death. Jesus seems to be at the end of himself. Now, if actually we read through the gospel account of Jesus, 
we've seen many different emotions. We have seen Jesus as one who is full of compassion towards the sick. We've seen Jesus frustrated at injustice and wrongdoing. We've even seen Jesus angry. Famous episode of him turning over tables in the temple. And also in the accounts of Jesus is his sadness and grief at the death of his friend Lazarus. But this moment seems to be a different level of emotion, anguish that we have not seen in Jesus before. And it's because Jesus is facing death. He knows that it's coming. But it seems that Jesus is crumbling. If we read it closely, it seems that Jesus is falling to pieces. And we might be surprised by that. What's happening to Jesus? Why is Jesus not braver? By way of contrast, about 500 years before the life of Jesus, in Greece there was a man known as Socrates. And he's a very famous person because many people would say he's the founder of Western philosophy. And he faced death in a very different manner. I was learning about him recently. On the one hand, yes, he could be known as the founder of Western philosophy, but on the other hand, he could also be known as one of the most annoying people ever to have lived. He regarded himself as a, as a gadfly, someone who's buzzing around Athens, asking annoying questions of people, particularly people in places of authority and influence. And the Socratic method is something that we get from Socrates, this dialogue, this constant asking questions, challenging assumptions, are you sure, taking different themes and asking difficult questions of them to get under the surface. And Socrates went around asking these questions and got himself into a lot of trouble for doing so. And eventually Socrates was arrested and put on trial charged essentially against blasphemy against the gods and the state religion and they also the other charge of corrupting the youth and actually he was sentenced to death and the accounts say that on the final day of his life when he's facing his death he's in prison his friends kind of rally around him and they try to offer him means of escape which he actually turns down and in the final few moments, his friends are around him and they're all so upset and they're crying. And Socrates tells them not to worry. Socrates says, stop crying. And then he drinks the poison. He tells a joke on his deathbed and then he dies. Now, is that a more heroic way to face death? Seems flippant, perhaps. But is he... Is there something noble about that, to laugh in the face of death? That seems to be the other end of the spectrum to how Jesus approaches things here. He's in agony and anguish. Matthew and Mark both, in their accounts, say that Jesus was greatly distressed. He's troubled. He falls to the floor. In Luke's account, Luke 22, verse 44, it says, And being in agony, Jesus prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. Now, we know there is a medical condition 
where blood mixes with your sweat and is brought on by a situation of extreme stress. Jesus seems to be crumbling in this moment. And so perhaps to take a leaf out of Socrates' book and at this moment ask a, maybe an uncomfortable or impious question, we could ask of Jesus here, why can't Jesus hold it together? Why isn't Jesus stronger or braver or more heroic? It's good to ask hard questions of the Bible. Because when you do in an honest way, you get good answers. In fact, what we're going to see today, you get life-giving answers. Let's consider this question together. What's going on with Jesus here? Why can't he hold it together? The answer could be, well, is Jesus reluctant? Is really Jesus reluctant? We see an element of that in what Jesus prays and what he says. And maybe you picked up on that in the passage just there. Jesus is saying, if there's any way out of this, but not as I will, but you will. So there seems to be on the surface at least some conflict with, within Jesus. Is Jesus reluctant to go through with the path that he's been on towards his death? Well, if we consider what Matthew says about Jesus, this moment of Gethsemane was not Jesus being caught by surprise. Actually, there are three examples, three times in Matthew's gospel that Jesus directly speaks to his disciples and tells them that this is going to happen, that Jesus is going to be taken, crucified, killed, and on the third day be raised. He says that in Matthew 16, Matthew 17, and Matthew 20 as well. Is Jesus reluctant? What we see actually is that Jesus is one who keeps his promises. Jesus said, no, I am going to the cross. That is where my journey leads me. And when he says it, he does it. And even though there's lots going on in this moment of Gethsemane, we are seeing someone who is perfectly faithful and obedient to the path that the Father had laid out for him. And yes, there is a moment of instinctively recoiling from the pain, but even in that, even in Jesus' prayer here, he doesn't even finish the sentence without reaffirming his faithful submission to God's plan. My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. I'm going to focus on that a little bit more later. But he says, nevertheless, not as I will but as you will. What we see in Jesus is half a sentence of considering amid a lifetime of faithful obedience. We can contrast Jesus with his disciples. We see that in this passage that we've just had read out for us. Jesus says to his disciples, this is what's going to happen, and that they were going to, they're going to fall away. All the way through these, the life of Jesus, when he's been telling them about what is to come, the disciples appeal to him and say, no, no, you don't have to do that. The disciples want the easy route. They try to talk him out 
of his path to the cross. And what's more, this passage that we've just had read out, the bookends of it, are the disciples saying, I won't deny you, I won't fall away. And then what happened at the end there? Jesus arrested, then all the disciples left him and fled. The disciples are those who they can't follow through with what they say. Jesus can't. Jesus does. The disciples won the easy route. Jesus walks the hard route. He never took the easy route. He never reneged on his promises. Jesus, have you considered Jesus? Did the right thing every time, no matter what the cost, no matter what the pain involved. That's what we're seeing here. Who are you like? You like the disciples or are you like Jesus? You take the, the easy route or the faithful route. If we're honest with ourselves, the easy route is often too tempting to resist. And we take that unethical shortcut at work. We tell that little lie, little bit of dishonesty, little bit of deception, bending of the truth, financial maneuvering. Now we justify it. Well, it saves time, saves face. No one will know. For some of you, that's what this week has been. And I put my finger on it now. Yeah, I did that. It's uncomfortable. We can justify it, but it lacks integrity. It's not faithful. It's Peter and the disciples. It's not Jesus. It's not his way. Jesus is faithful. He doesn't take the shortcut. He walks the hard road. And what about your promises? You held up Jesus. He is one who said, this is what I'm going to do. And he does it. The disciples don't. What about us? Do you do, do you do what you, will say, you say you will do? Yeah, I'll, I'll be at that event. Oh yeah, I'll, I'll call you. I'll be there. Oh yeah, I'll, I'll do that thing that you've asked me to do. Are you faithful? Are you faithful like Jesus is faithful? The promises that you made, do you, do you follow through? Maybe your spouse, you've made promises to be faithful to your spouse. Are you faithful in thought as well as word and deed and what you look at online and thoughts about other people? Flirtatious behavior. Are you faithful to your friends? Honest with them, sticking up with them, faithful to family members, faithful to your employer. Are you walking with integrity? Or do you say one thing and do another thing? We find when we're honest with ourselves, we're much more like the disciples than Jesus. You see, we might imagine that Jesus just skated through life. But if you, if you look at what Jesus 
had to face the hard road that he had to walk. And yet in every single moment, every day of Jesus' earthly ministry, he's surrounded by the pressure of others. He had these choices to make, just like we have those small individual choices. Are we going to be faithful or not? And Jesus faced the same pressures, the same temptations, and he never did anything wrong. He never thought anything wrong. He never said anything wrong. Can you imagine that? Read through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all shedding light on Jesus' life. Look for something that he did wrong. No wrong word. No wrong action. Even in this passage, we have Jesus being arrested, and it happens at night. Because Jesus said, I was in the... I was around everyone. You could have arrested me anytime. But they, they know they couldn't catch him out. They tried to catch him out. They tried to get him to say something that was wrong. And they couldn't. And everyone saw that. The most remarkable person that ever lived. Even everyone's trying to catch him out and they can't catch him out. Because he's faithful. Because his words are true. And he walks with integrity. Jesus' road was hard, yet he never put a foot wrong. And so when we come to Gethsemane and consider, yes, Jesus is obviously experiencing something that's overwhelming for him, but we're not seeing Jesus stumble because Jesus doesn't do that. He's not reluctant in this moment. He's not turning it back in this moment. No, he is faithful. So he's not reluctant. But what's happening there is, is there is the weakness here? Is this showing Jesus's weakness? That's another answer perhaps to the question of why can't Jesus hold the things together here? We do see Jesus wrestling, struggling. He's praying three times. It says he fell on his face. Again, when we look closely at what's happening here, we see that Jesus is actually in control. Consider before Gethsemane, we have the Last Supper, and Jesus is saying to his disciples, you're going to fall away. But the manner in which he does it, he's reflective, he's calm, he's matter-of-fact. And in Gethsemane, yes, he's overwhelmed, but he's not running away. He's prayerful. And then in his arrest, again, he's submissive, he's calm. He is one who is in control. And again, we can contrast Jesus with the disciples. They demonstrate weakness. Jesus asks them to do one thing. They had one job in this moment. Watch and pray. Just stick with me. Pray with me. And what do they do? They fall asleep. How, how, could they, how could they fail Jesus like this? All they had to do was, was stay away. I've read this passage many times and thought about that. How stupid are the disciples? I mean, come on. We've, if you've ever been to a prayer meeting, you might have had the temptation to fall asleep. You're there deep in, deep in prayer. And then you realize, wait a minute, am I asleep here? I've been there. But this, this is Jesus's 
hour of greatest need and all they had to do was stay awake and stay with him. And the only conclusion I can come to that makes sense of this is that they didn't recognize that it was Jesus's hour of greatest need. They didn't understand what he was saying. They, they were selfish and they weren't thinking of what Jesus was going through. And that follows on from how they've responded to Jesus when he's talking about the cross before. He's telling them this is what's going to happen and they try to downplay it, try to deny it. They're not living in what their friend is facing. And they fail him. And again, the disciples, their behavior resonates perhaps with our own. The disciples, they did what they shouldn't do. They won the easy route. They didn't keep their promises, but they also failed to do what they should have done. We're talking about sins of commission and sins of omission, just like us. Each one of us, we do things that are wrong. We've already reflected on that a little bit, but we also fail to do the things that we ought to do. And maybe here as I'm describing the fact that the disciples, they weren't there for their friend Jesus. They weren't there for him. Maybe that resonates for you in ways that you've not been there for your friend or your spouse or your kids or your colleague. They just needed your time. They just needed you to think of them. They just needed you to reach out and ask how they were doing. They just needed you to journey with them in what they were going through, but you were thoughtless and you were selfish and you were so wrapped up in what you were doing you didn't love and serve them. And despite Jesus' disciples failing him, Jesus, is he weak? No, no, he, he is the only one who stays strong. Jesus refuses to think of his own welfare. This is not my will, but yours. That's his prayer. That's his repeated prayer is jesus weak in this moment for being in anguish no he is strong in resisting temptation something that the disciples and something that you and i fail to do so if he's not reluctant if he's not weak we still return to this question why can't jesus Hold it together. Why isn't he more like Socrates who faces death with composure and a joke and laughs it off and carries on? Well, the answer is this. Jesus knew what he was facing. Jesus knew what was really going on. In this moment, he saw the truth of his situation and he responded in an emotionally pure way. You see, again, con contrast Socrates and his flippant approach. Why does he face, face death like that? Because he's ignorant. In fact, Socrates was famous for his pronouncement that the only thing he was sure of was his ignorance. That's why he was going around questioning everything. You can't be sure about that. You can't be sure about that. And ignorance is bliss. If you don't know the extent of what you're facing, it's easy to be flippant. And Socrates, 
didn't know what death meant. He didn't know what was beyond death. He didn't really know what he was facing. And even if he had an inkling, he was denying it. But that is not what Jesus is experiencing here. No, no, quite the opposite. Jesus knew exactly what he was facing. Let me read it out again. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed saying, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. As Jesus prays, he's seeing this cup before him. What does, what does that mean? What's that about? Well, in the Bible, the cup, or a picture symbol of a cup, is used to refer to destiny. And that can be a positive thing. Some of the Psalms, including Psalm 16, talks about the Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. It's my inheritance. It's my destiny. Perhaps more often, a cup is referred to things in a negative way, in terms of God's judgment against sin. And that's what it's referring to here. As Jesus prays, as Jesus contemplates the cross, the crucifixion that he's about to endure. And Jesus is not just seeing it on a human level of facing physical death. He is seeing it clearly in this moment as the moment of him taking on himself God's judgment against sin. Now, as a society, we don't like talking about sin and judgment very much. Often people want to talk about justice and, and injustice and think that is important, and it is. And we feel that it's wrong when people don't get what they deserved. Well, we've already considered the sinless perfection of Jesus and the ways in which, as we consider him, that shows up our guilt and that each of us is guilty of sin. So let me ask you, what about what you deserve? What about if you were facing your own mortality? What about if you were facing God in his holiness and his perfection, a just and holy God? What about what you deserve? You and I would respond to that predicament with words that Jesus used here. Please, please don't give me what I deserve, God. Please, if there's any way... Let your judgment pass over me. If we were to face judgment for our sin, we would fall to the floor. We would be agony and anguish. Please don't give me what I deserve. Please give me mercy, not justice. 
Now, usually at this point in the message, where we talk about how Jesus took our place and took what we deserved on, on himself. And that's true. And he has. And that is what this passage is about. But there's actually more than that going on here. Gethsemane actually reminds us of the extent of what the cross has accomplished. And it's that that actually makes sense of the extent of Jesus's anguish and the extent of his reaction and how and why Jesus is pushed to the end of himself completely. Because Gethsemane is Jesus standing in the shoes of sinners and seeing the judgment of God coming down the line towards him. against sin, but not just your sin and not just my sin. The Bible says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Why is Jesus at the end of himself? Because he's facing the judgment of God against sin and not for his own sin. He, he had no sin and not even for just your sin and my sin, but for the sins of the whole world. Do you know, can you consider, can you grasp how broken this world is? How depraved this world is? Consider the wrongdoing of this world in its entirety. Consider how that must bring about such a reaction in one who is completely just and completely perfect and completely righteous. We see the brokenness of the world, the injustice, we cry out for justice. Well, there is one, there is a God who is just and his judgment is coming. But Gethsemane is the moment where Jesus, the Son of God, steps forward and says, I'll take what you deserve and I'll take what she deserves and I'll take what he deserves. Again and again, you're a good person. Well, you're not. And I'll take what you deserve. You're a bad person. I'll take what you deserve. He takes on the sin of the world. This, but you're a corrupt person. I'll take on your sin. You're an adulterer. I'll take on your sin and the punishment for what you deserve. Thief, criminal, abuser, murderer, I'll take what you deserve. Can you imagine that? No, we can't even begin to imagine what Jesus is facing at Gethsemane. The sins of the world. Does he run away? No, he steps forward. Not my will, but yours be done. No wonder he's overwhelmed. He's overwhelmed, but faithful. Overwhelmed, but determined. The hour is at hand. And you know why? You know why he's taken it upon himself 
because John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. I want you to consider that wonderful world. Whoever, whoever believes. Jesus was in anguish in Gethsemane because he was about to be condemned for the worst that the world has to offer so that no one is beyond the reach of the cross. You see, our sinful hearts are prone to say, even me, could Jesus die for even me, even after what I've done? And Jesus is taken upon the cross the sins of the whole world so that he can look at every single person in this room and in this city, in this country, in this world and say, yes, I see what you've done. I know what you've done. And I've taken what you deserve. Jesus is in anguish, of course, because he's reluctant, no, because he's weak, no, but because he saw the cup of God's judgment for sin, my sin, your sin, the world's sin, and he said, not my will, but yours be done, I'll take it, I'll die for you. Such is the love of Jesus. Such is his love for you. Such is his perfection and strength that he's given himself. A sacrifice once and for all. Sweating drops of blood, he shed his blood for the sins of the world. So that we might come to him. So we might know not the taste of that cup, but the taste of his love, the sweetness of eternity with God, with sin dealt with, and love secured. What a saviour. Let's come to him today. Put all your trust in him today. Rejoice in him today that he has died for you. Amen.